Welcome to the Explore Words, Discover Worlds podcast, presented by Bradford Literature Festival. In this episode, Paul Rogers, Emeritus Professor of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford and a regular contributor on global security for open democracy talks about the life-changing impact of the conflict on the residents of Ukraine, creating a European refugee crisis comparable to the Second World War. Originally recorded at Bradford Literature Festival 2022, Rogers explores what the conflict in Ukraine means for the world order and whether Putin's actions will create a chain of events that could change the course of history. Without further ado, I would love you to give a very warm welcome to Paul Rogers. Just making sure that my own phone is on silent. It's very embarrassing when it goes off. Well, thank you very much for ha having me talk this morning. Um, as you probably know, there have been a series of talks about the current situation broadly in Eastern Europe, and particularly in Ukraine. And there's a, one tomorrow morning with Richard Sakwal, uh, who is Professor of Russian and European Studies at Kent, and uh, Bishop Nick Baines, the Bishop of Leeds. And uh, so that's a pan panel, and I'll be joining that. If you don't actually know that Nick, in his earlier life, before he joined the church, was actually in intelligence at GCHQ, specializing in Russian translation. So he'll be a particularly interesting person to, to listen to, I think, tomorrow morning. Um, one word of explanation, I'm not specifically a Ukraine specialist. I specialize in the changing nature of war uh, and do it in a more comparative way. As it happens, uh, we have quite close family links with Eastern Russia and also rather distant family links with Ukraine. Uh, but that is no way of saying that I'm sort of an expert in the country and its politics. What I really was asked to talk about this morning was to look at the actual war itself. Um, what were the underlying factors which saw it start? How did it start? How did it go wrong in the first 12 hours? And what has happened since? And then as almost as much time on that as on some of the international implications which we're now seeing. I should add that we do also have in the audience, as well as Richard, um, Jeff Tanzi, who is a, a world security food specialist, and he actually addressed the Literature Festival last week. And I will ask him to make a few comments on the food situation, although I will touch on that, because that is one of the big international issues which is coming out of the Ukraine war. Um, I'll try and limit myself to about 25 minutes so that we've got 20 minutes for questions because I think, and discussion, because I think that would be the most interesting part because there is so much happening at the present. And I'll sketch very quickly through the longer-term origins of the war, because I'm sure Richard could do that much more competently and may, may well have to do so tomorrow morning in response to questions. Um, I think myself, I would date the origin of this war probably to about 1989-1990 and the breakup of the Soviet Union. Uh, essentially, that was a very rapid, if anticipated, breakdown. Remember that uh, the Soviet Union then was under President Gorbachev, and whatever else he did, he facilitated uh, a rapid ending of the Soviet system, and it might not have been that way. Uh, but very quickly, there was a, a coming apart. In fact, the whole system essentially came apart in about 40 or so weeks. I mentioned that term because essentially, if you look at the end of the British Empire, you could date that from the 1930s, ending in the late 70s. So that was about a 40-year period of loss of empire. Uh, 40 years later, 
uh, now, we're, well, in fact, more than 40 years later, we're now in many ways trying to come to terms with that. And Brexit and much of modern-day politics is about that. We wouldn't have two apparently world-ranging uh, aircraft carriers if it wasn't this desire to maintain a global role. So essentially, we took 40 years to lose our empire and another 40 years to not yet get over it. Um, the Russians took about 40 weeks, and you can see it's a huge difference. It did mean, I think, that in the 1990s, with the rapid transfer to hypercapitalism, um, with pretty devastating results to the Russian economy, huge divisions of wealth and poverty, uh, the best part of a third of the entire population of Russia was below the poverty line by the mid-90s. And there was, in the Russian side, I think, a deep bitterness uh, of the way in which Russia seemed to be treated with contempt by most of the rest of the world. And towards the end of the 90s, you also saw the progressive expansion of, of NATO right up to the Russian border. Now, I spent some time in the Soviet Union in the 1980s, and you always used to hear the term the Russian near abroad. In other words, not Russia itself, but the territories close to it. And essentially, NATO very much encroached on many of those territories. And it was under those circumstances that Putin came to power, intent almost from the start in rebuilding Russia's status. It was not a superpower except in one important sense. That, of course, was the nuclear sense. It had a large arsenal of strategic nuclear weapons and tactical nuclear weapons as well. That was the one sense it would, you would describe Russia as a major world power. But economically not. I mean, even now, economically, the entire Russian economy is rather smaller than that of Germany, and I think about the same size as that of Britain. So we have to remember that in the background. And the assumption in the West among military thinkings was that the Russian also maintained uh, very strong conventional forces and was a force to be reckoned with in that sense as well. Uh, if you fast forward very briefly through to the early 2000s, through to 2007, 8, and 9, you had the Russian involvement in uh, Georgia, which, if you look at it from a military point of view, did indicate major problems. For example, in the use of air power, particularly strike air power, uh, the Russian Air Force found that the only pilots who had sufficient flying hours to be competent were either the instructors or the test pilots and they had to go to the fore. Most of the Russian Air Force just did not have the flying time to even operate as an effective Air Force. This changed somewhat afterwards as the money came in from the high oil prices, and essentially uh, Putin himself was able to put far more money into rebuilding the armed forces. But it turned out it was really very little. Without going into detail of Crimea and what was to happen afterwards in eastern Ukraine, you actually saw more and more this... Uh, feeling within Russia, particularly Putin's inner circle, uh, that this was not an acceptable situation for Russia at all. Uh, and there's a sort of history of this going right back, uh, uh, really, the, the idea of Russia leading a Eurasia in the future, uh, really a very strong counter to the other superpower, which is basically US come NATO. Uh, China, curiously, doesn't figure hugely in this, but there may be more time to discuss that if you're able to join us tomorrow morning. To cut a long story short, about two years ago, two and a half, three years ago, it was clear that Russia, under Putin and the group around him, was planning a major intervention into Ukraine. Uh, how far it would go was difficult to say. And if you followed the military literature in January and February last year, you've got a fairly clear indication that they, frankly, were not sure 
in spite of what the politicians and others were saying. What actually was to be the case, it turned, I think, we now know with some accuracy, is the Putin leadership uh, had essentially three war aims. One was to bring down the Ukraine government in Kyiv, the Zelensky government, very quickly, possibly in a matter of 24 or at most 36 hours, and would be able to replace it with a more acceptable form of governance as far as Russia was concerned. It was also necessary to gain almost immediate air supremacy, not air superiority, but air supremacy. Now, this is very much the, the role of the Russian Air Force and of standoff weapons aimed at the bases. And the third, uh, basically, development, not, occupy, not occupying the whole of Russia. That was never the intention, and none of the serious analysts thought that. The, the system was not there to handle it. But what the tension was, was obviously to take pretty direct control of the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine and link up with Crimea, uh, possibly even going right round the Black Sea ports towards um, Romania. Uh, those are really the principal aims. Uh, and there's some indications that Russia did not expect uh, any major opposition from Ukraine. In fact, expected to be welcomed in many parts of Ukraine. Uncannily like the Western approach at the start of the Iraq War in March 2003, when it was expected that the American troops would be basically met with flowers as they crossed the border, instead of which they were met with pretty strong defences. As far as Russia was concerned, though, the plan rested very much on a surprise attack at the start. In Kiev itself, the, the capital, you have about, I think it's about 19 miles, maybe sort of 25 kilometers to the northwest of the city center, you have an airfield, which is actually an extremely large airfield because it's the one used by the Antonov Air Corporation, which produces some of the world's largest transport planes. It is not a commercial airport in the normal sense. And the plan on the 24th of uh, February, early hours, was actually to take control of that with a helicopter and parachute-borne support using elite troops. Uh, controlling the runway in the airport and being able to defend it would allow the rapid flying in of many more troops and equipment coinciding with crossing the border from Belarus and Russia. That was the plan. It started like that, but the Ukrainian army and air force was already aware of this, probably through American intelligence, and they moved a special forces division of their army, one of their elite groups, basically to defend the airport. In spite of huge numbers of Russian troops flown in, they were not able to take it for about 36 hours. And that one incident right at the start of the war was to determine, in many ways, its whole future. And within, you may remember on the Friday, uh, you actually had indications that progress was not as expected. And on the Sunday, the original invasion was on the 24th, on the Sunday, you had uh, Vladimir Putin making his famous speech, really warning NATO off and threatening escalation of an unparalleled sort. Because even at that stage, the inner circle in uh, the Kremlin knew that there were major problems. It took really two or three weeks for this to become more generally apparent. So that the original idea uh, of actually taking control of the country, being reasonably welcomed, and essentially from that point on, having a relatively easy ride, never happened. If we go on then to look at the first two or three weeks, essentially there was, fairly, there was something of a lull in about week two, three, maybe even to four, uh, and the fighting was not as intense. The fighting had been very intense at the start, 
And one of the shocks for the Russian army was that the opposition was far stronger than expected. One other thing to add, many of the original components, usually the second echelon going into Ukraine, were not actually serving military. They were basically uh, domestic security forces used to controlling opposition within civil populations. So in other words, if there was to be any sort of civil opposition, they would be the sort of people who would be able to deal with it. And they took very heavy casualties when they came up against very determined, high morale Ukrainians, both paramilitaries and militaries. So you see really the origins of what was going wrong. Um, going on, there were sort of subtle changes. I should also say that air supremacy was never achieved. Even though the Russian Air Force controls much of the airspace, it was never achieved. Going on from that point, though, I think what you see is a move really to concentrate on the bombardment of the key city of Kiev, Kharkov, uh, hundreds of kilometers to the east, but also quite near the border, and really an attempt to move the war along uh, by counter-urban warfare. Uh, very, very damaging, very high casualties. But that too was resisted, particularly around Kyiv, where in fact within about three or four weeks or so, the Russian forces were being pushed back and eventually withdrew. Uh, not so much from Kharkiv, but to an extent from that as well. And what you see progressively over the next, well, two months really, was a change in the nature of the war that the Russians were trying to fight. And that was much more to trying to move towards control of the territory from Crimea through the southeast and east through to the Donbass region, I'm using that in a fairly loose term, and really to take control of areas which included um, the separatist areas that had already declared themselves independent. And right at the start of the war, the Russian parliament had actually accepted that. So really, this was almost the stage that we are now in to an extent, that this is a long war, and I think it's best characterized by being one of violent stalemate. Stalemate, yes, but also very violent. And essentially, in recent weeks, uh, we've seen really a consolidation of Russian forces in the east of the country. Consolidation almost entirely fixed on the towns and cities of the Donbass. And we've seen that very recently uh, with the loss of one or two of the cities. But we've also seen a second aspect of the war, which is ongoing and unpredictable. And this concerns the use of long-range missiles against uh, urban populations. There are frequent claims that these attacks are purely against, for example, warehouses controlling arms that are really been sent by NATO and are feeding through to, to the Russian forces, uh, to, the, to the Ukraine forces. There may be some truth in that early on, but one of the things that has become clear in the last four to five weeks is that in fact the Russian armed forces are actually running out of long-range standoff missiles in terms of accuracy. They're tending to use ones which are less accurate because that is almost all they've got in their arsenals. You would say, well, why aren't they making more? Why aren't the factories going full tilt? Well, partly because one of the effects of the sanctions on Russia has been blockages of some of the specialist equipment, particularly electronics, which would normally be imported to feed into these systems. That's one particular area where the sanctions are actually working. So the situation we've moved towards is really, as I say, a stalemate with very slow progress on the Russian side. At the same time, what you've also seen is some withdrawals. Uh, you've seen that, in fact, um, the Ukrainian army itself 
is making some progress, uh, north of Crimea, in fact. Uh, it's making some progress. Well, you saw the, the evacuation from Snake Island, uh, where essentially Russia was not able to maintain that because Ukraine did actually have sufficient of the forces to actually control that uh, and take it over. We then had to look at, well, why is this? Essentially, what we've seen progressively is the transition of this war from a kind of interstate conflict from Russia uh, to, and Ukraine through to a proxy war with NATO more and more and more prominent. Now, you could say very clearly that Zelensky himself has displayed some very interesting and unusual leadership characteristics which were unexpected. And this, I think, has been a further problem on the Russian side. He's basically able to speak to the rest of the world, crucially, or more particularly the rest of the Western world, uh, to actually point out all the problems that Ukraine is facing. Essentially, and it's from his perspective, it is absolutely right that he does it. He tends to promote what you would call, if not worst case scenarios, uh, bad case scenarios. In other words, he's saying constantly how big the problems are. You saw that, for example, in the long siege of Mariupol, where in fact within two weeks he was saying that they're going to have to withdraw, they're under huge pressure, and they lasted another 10 weeks. So essentially that again is being repeated. Uh, you're seeing basically uh, indications that uh, the Ukrainians were on the, on, on the point of withdrawing from Luhansk, which is one of the cities constantly under siege. But that's been the situation now for two weeks, and they're still there. So in that sense, I think what Zelensky has to do is to say to the West, we are going under unless you help us. And he's doing that in all sorts of ways. From the Western point of view, uh, that is actually what is happening. I won't go into all the details. I'll give you a very recent example. I mean, in the very early stages of rapid supply of uh, human portable anti-aircraft weapons and particularly anti-tank weapons, which had a devastating effect, particularly on the majority of Russian tanks, which were of a rather older vintage. Now, of course, if anything, what Ukraine is short of is longer range artillery, particularly multiple launch rocket systems, and also uh, means of defending themselves against the ballistic and particularly the cruise missile strikes. And we've seen a number of those in the, just the last few days, including the devastating one uh, just near uh, Odessa just a couple of days ago. And I heard on the car radio another strike in one of the southern cities uh, earlier this morning. Essentially, the Ukrainians do not have direct responses to those. Ballistic missiles of any range are not easy to counter. The Americans and the Israelis and one or two others can do it, but to my knowledge, those have not yet been fed in. They are very advanced systems. But cruise missiles are another matter. Uh, we had the National Security Advisor in the White House announcing two days ago that a large quantity of armaments to defend against cruise missiles will now be supplied. As far as the artillery is concerned, um, basically, the United States is now bringing in the so-called HIMARS multiple launch rocket system, which is essentially longer range and more accurate uh, than anything that Russia has. And they are now actually starting to be used as of about four or five days ago, and reportedly are starting to have an effect. I'm sorry to go into all this detail, which is very nasty and shouldn't really come from a professor of peace studies, but there you are, you have to look at it. The point about this is to some extent, in a so sort of way, the war has been a kind of seesaw. Right at the start, it looked absolutely devastating, and people thought the Kiev might fall within 48, 48 hours. Then it changed into kind of stalemate. Um, and then, more recently, there's been some Russian 
move forward in the eastern part of the country, and that is indeed partly due uh, to their ability to concentrate mass artillery in fairly small places. Uh, that looks like it is going to change, may already be changing now, um, and there's a very considerable significance in that. Um, there are many other things, but I want conscious we won't have 20 minutes for question. Let me just draw a few out. Much of the other stuff may come out in questioning, or of course uh, tomorrow morning in, in the next session. Um, and I want to talk a bit about the world situation as well. Um, a couple of things that I think need to come out. I've mentioned Zelensky's role and his clear ability uh, to communicate. Um, I think it's also worth saying uh, that within the Western alliance, some countries are more keen than others to continue this with heavy support for Ukraine. There's a long article in this morning's New York Times, which I haven't had a chance to do more than skim, which is pointing to um, differences within NATO and within the EU, which don't appear on the surface because of all the sort of strong speeches coming out of the recent meetings, but they're underneath. And I think Putin has long been banking on this because so far it just hasn't gone that way. NATO is now bigger. You have Sweden and you have um, uh, Finland also involved and they've now been accepted very rapidly. And the nature of their previous links with NATO means that they will be integrated within a matter of weeks. So to that expected it's, uh, aspect, it's actually been difficult news for Putin's people to take. Uh, there is very much a mood within some Western security circles that you go all the way. Basically, this is the opportunity, to put it very bluntly, to wreck the Russian military and the economy for a generation. I'm using those terms because that's the sort of ones that come out. And it's not just uh, retired generals in the US who are saying this, it's some of the major uh, analysts as well. And that is, if you like, one particular view on the West. Um, the main problem with that is, of course, this is classically a war in which neither side can win and neither side can lose at the same time. What I mean by that is if Ukraine is really pushed back by the Russians, NATO will put more and more equipment and help in to stop it. If, however, Ukraine seriously is superior and is making really big progress, and there is talk now that Ukraine just simply has to evict all the Russian forces, evict all the Russian forces from the whole country. If the Ukraine gets into that position, essentially Putin all still has the option of going to a higher level, chemical and nuclear weapons. And one has to remember, this is something we've spent a whole morning on almost, that policy on the nuclear side is never purely about deterrence through mutually assured destruction. Uh, NATO since 1968 and communique MC 14-3 has had a first-use policy. Russia undoubtedly has a first-use policy now. Putin's made that clear. So in other words, if Putin was really pushed into a corner, he has that option. He may just threaten or he may actually do it and use a demonstration strike. Again, we can go into details if you wish there. The key point is whether, whether one likes it or not, this war has to end at some stage by negotiation. That is a very strong thing for people to swallow, but that's the reality in this unusual situation. It raises very big questions about the whole idea of nuclear strategy. It's one of the reasons why personally I've been bitterly opposed to nuclear weapons since the Cuban Missile Crisis when I was a teenager. It is actually a very dangerous situation to be in. But do remember that, in my view at least, the war cannot end in victory for either side in those circumstances. There are other issues as well. What about the situation in Russia? Very difficult to determine. 
Uh, I'm seeing a, a Russian friend tomorrow afternoon. I wish it was actually yesterday afternoon, but never, nevertheless. But what is clear, uh, some of the Russian um, journalists, and some very good ones, who essentially are not able to work or communicate in Russia, are doing so outside. And there are a number of sources in English language originating from some of the really good journalistic systems. That and much other information does suggest that there are problems within Russia itself. And essentially, I think what you're seeing is the sheer rate of casualties. You will recall, or older ones among us will recall, that in the 1980s under Gorbachev, when he had the huge predicament of Russian for Soviet forces in Afghanistan, uh, they were being worn down by the casualties. Something like 10,000 young Russians were killed in Afghanistan over the best part of a decade. It's probably true that something like 30,000 Russians have been killed or basically maimed for the long term, and the numbers may be greater than that, in the past four months in, uh, in Ukraine. And that is certainly having an effect. Back in the 1980s, essentially a group known as the Mothers of Those Killed became very significant within Russia itself. And that is, appears to be repeating itself now. But Putin is absolutely determined. The people around him are determined. And essentially, on that basis, it's going to be very difficult to bring this to an end. Um, in terms of some of the worldwide issues, um, I will ask Jeff to say a few words at the end of this session because he is a specialist on the food side. But I draw your attention to several things which I think are significant. One, this is a classic situation for Shakespeare saying, now thrive the armorers. Um, defense spending, or should I call it military spending, is going through the roof, uh, both in Russia and China and across the West. And we're basically into the potential for new arms races. Um, the money to be made from this is massive, and so many of the defense companies are really very eager to get into this. Uh, even at the level of demonstrating their new systems, there have been one or two American systems which have not actually even been demonstrated for the American population, but already been used by the Ukrainians in, against the Russians. And essentially, that means if they work, just as if those anti-tank weapons worked, then that means it is far easier to sell them uh, to other states later on. I well remember immediately after the end of the Falklands Malvinas War, the makers of the Sea Dart missile, a British Royal Navy missile, uh, basically simply repeated the standard uh, advert for the system in the military journals and just had a sort of so-called rubber stamped on it, combat proven. If you've got a good combat proven weapon to spend, to, to sell, then you know, you're into a good thing. And that is a direct effect of this conflict. It's going to mean very big increases in military spending, which this year are hitting $2 trillion in a single year and are likely to be up to $2.5 trillion within four or five years. Our own dear, beloved Boris Johnson has made this very clear that in Britain we're going to spend much more heavily. He's now spending to spend billions, tens of billions in addition to current spending over the next, uh, what, sort of more or less a decade. And that means very big increases for the defense industries in Britain. He has also committed one of our two aircraft carriers purely to European defense. Now, the point about an aircraft carrier is it takes a huge amount to operate it, big flotilla and the rest. And you can't, Britain cannot operate two aircraft carriers at war readiness at the same time at present. So basically, if you're airmarking one, either the Queen Elizabeth or the Prince of Wales, uh, to that role, Britain is no longer able to project aircraft power globally. 
It actually underpins one of the, under, undermines one of the cornerstones of current defense policy. But that came and needs must, and that's the attitude. As far as other issues are concerned, well, one thing I think is worth reminding ourselves, and this is on, on a much wider dimension, and that is the effect of COVID. And there are two elements to bear in mind. Bearing in mind that COVID is still very much with us, and I think we're seeing this, this now in Britain even, certainly in France. Uh, COVID itself, on I think more accurate uh, reporting, and this is accepted privately by the WHO, has so far killed between 15 and 22 million people worldwide. The official figure of about six or seven million is basically uh, a formal assessment of what is known. But so many countries are under-reporting, it's actually a much bigger problem. Now, in fact, let's say, let's say 20 million people, which may itself be an underestimate, um, that is far more than all the civilians killed in wars since 1945. So you could ask for a start that COVID is a far greater human security problem than any conventional war we've seen in recent years. It would only be matched by a nuclear war. But COVID has also had a huge problem across the global south. The economic problems of rising prices uh, and shortages are really dire for many people right across the global south. And that in turn is one of the factors which is leading us to what I think for many people in the West is an uncomfortable fact. The attitude among most Western general publics, and that includes Britain and the United States, is that the Russians are absolutely heinous in what they're doing, uh, and that will be used generically, which is always very dangerous because, I mean, many, many people in Russia, uh, I suspect, uh, basically will have nothing to do with this war. We know that at least 200,000 have left, and many Russians working abroad with close connection actually say that, you know, the feelings are very mixed. There appears to be an element within the intelligentsia who reluctantly are now having to support the war. And the reason for that is that they do see the whole war as being a terrible mistake and it could really wreck Russia. And for that reason, they want Russia to be able to end it quickly. So they support it on that basis. How deep that is, we, we simply don't know. But what is most significant, I think, in the long term is the attitude of the wider world. Broadly speaking, you see in the, what you call, might call the North Atlantic countries, but also going through to Japan and Australia and some others, support for the war, pretty strong support for the war, but some worry about the way it might go and particularly worry about the possibility of nuclear escalation. Across the global south as a whole, it's a very different message. It's probably best indicated by the phrase, a plague on both your houses. Because in fact, although there's opposition to what Russia is doing, uh, the comment comes immediately, well, but look at what we've done. And essentially, there's a lot in that. I mean, you look at the destruction in Yemen, over the last few years. It's smaller scale, but it's been massively supported, both the Saudis and the Emiratis. Their bombing has been massively supported. There'd be many examples of hospitals uh, destroyed, there'd be many examples of wedding parties killed. Uh, and the loss of life has been huge. And Yemen, which economically and po in population sorts, was never a rich country, but it was certainly a lot poorer now than it was uh, sort of 20 years ago, is in pretty dire straits. So in other words, from a southern perspective, the West does that, and, they expect it, and we're expected to expose Russia. They are basically receiving it for the first time. And what links to this, I think, is the role of television. Because what we're seeing on television now, um, day by day, and at the start of the war, 24-7, is the actual effect of modern warfare on urban areas. That's much more like it really is. But it was exactly like that in, in Iraq, 
and very much like that in Afghanistan as well. I have a, an Arab friend, well, Arab-speaking friend, uh, his, uh, yeah, uh, uh, basically a Palestinian friend, who said to me once, I think, what you had to understand, Paul, is if you look at Al Jazeera, English language version, you get a particular picture of the war in, in Iraq. If you look at the Arabic version, you get a much stronger, less sensitive picture of what's going on. In other words, for Western audiences, they don't show the real loss of life and suffering to anything like what they would do to a, re, uh, a Middle East audience. And this, I think, goes a lot to explain the plague on both your houses. In other words, people across the global south do not readily buy into the idea that basically it's all the Russians' fault and the West just doesn't do that kind of thing. They just don't buy it. And that, I think, is a difficult that we have to factor in in how we deal with things. Um, let me just draw things to a close. Uh, on the food side, and I will ask Jeff to say a few words in a moment. On the food, food side, there were already major problems. Uh, they basically concerned uh, problems with fertilizer supply, uh, problems with uh, basically energy supply, uh, major problems developing on the climate breakdown side, that is clearly very much happening, and also many problems of concentration on the wrong crops. And one has to remember that as far as the basic world system is concerned, it is a system in a market economy. And that, I think, is something we, we, we tend to forget. I don't know how many large grain corporations there are now. I know at the time of the world food crisis in 1974, there were just six. I think there may be even fewer than that. And it's actually very good business when you actually have a food shortage. The reality is, and Jeff can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is correct, is as of now, uh, there's enough food in the major silos of the world to see us through this year. What there isn't is enough money for the poorer people to be able to buy it. And that's been the situation through many food crises in the past. So we have many different things to continue in the future. We can talk about it more in questions. But essentially, this is a pretty different world. I'm not even touched on the big issue of do we have any prospects now of demilitarization and arms control overall. There are prospects. Um, I know personally that there are already groups that are putting out feelers for talks behind the scenes on both sides. They never get any publicity. They can't possibly get any publicity. And it is certainly, as far as we can tell, in spite of all that Ukraine has experienced, there is a willingness within Ukrainian political surfaces, circumstances to face up to the fact there will have to be some degree of compromise. We don't yet see that in Russia. I don't believe that the withdrawal from Snake Island was just sort of making the best of it. I think that was an essential thing to do. But you don't know how things will change. And the real thing is that if there is any opening for any kind of negotiation, there are very experienced people around the world who know how to help. A lot of them associated with the, the UN, um, people who've actually trained at University of Kent in cognitive analysis or Bradford in peace studies. There are people around who can do it, and they know full well that you have to go in with no expectations of success. And that is a good basis for trying to bring opposing sides together. But let me leave it at that point. We've got more than a quarter of an hour left, but Jeff, would you like to say a few words first? Uh, very briefly, he sprung this on me as he got, I arrived. I was speaking last week about are we 10 steps away from, are you 10 steps away from famine? The answer is if we have a nuclear war, yes, everyone tomorrow won. But the issue about Ukraine is, and Russia, is that Russia and Ukraine were embedded into our global food system as suppliers of fertilizer and cereals and oil seeds. And that has been interrupted immensely. And as the UN report of the special group looking at energy, food and finance has pointed out, this is threatening billions of people worldwide. You may have seen reports from Sri Lanka and what's happening there. 
and the impact of this is already pushed approaching 200 million people uh, onto the edge. And it can only be solved by, as they were saying here, and remember Ukraine was the Russia's, the USSR's breadbasket. Russia, Ukraine is very important in terms of food supplies in that part of the world and now increasingly to the rest because we've got our global supply chains. The price of energy has gone up, price of fertilizer has gone up, uh, price of uh, basic food commodities have gone up. Partly there's issues around food speculation and who can trade in this and there's issues there. Um, and if you want to have a look, I, I mean, I'll, if there are questions, you can talk to me afterwards. There's a nice report from the UN, not nice, but it's a kind of sobering report and you have a look at this afterwards, pointing out that unless you can reintegrate the uh, Ukrainian and Russian supplies of grain and fertilizer into the uh, global economy, then there will be millions of people uh, suffering, probably dying. And secondly, the finance issue. Many developing countries depend upon imports, and the ability of them to deal with this is really undermined at the moment, and unless you have something to do with debt relief and new financing, they won't be able to do it. So huge issues around that, and there's a need to maintain the support for the World Food Programme, which is the emergency supply for a lot of people around the world. I won't say more, there's lots of time for others. Thanks very much, Jeff. Um, just before we go into questions, two points, uh, two apologies in a way. Firstly, I went out the house this morning with the wrong set of notes, so I've been speaking this from memory. So some of my points may not be very accurate. <laughs> no. I've been trained to do this for six, 40 years. I ought to be able to do it now. But the point is that so there may be some inaccuracies. And basically, this bit goes on the podcast so that people know that as well. The other thing is that I actually have a slight hearing problem at present, and I haven't yet got it treated, although hopefully soon. So if you would be patient and just speak up when you're ask, asking questions or making comments. So on that basis, who would like to go first? I think we have two roving mics available for you. So there's one just here, I think. Yeah. Well, thank you very much from what you have said so far. Um, but just to put your speech in context, could you give us some indication as to how the capacity of the Ukrainian forces, military, uh, air and sea, compare with Russia, and perhaps as a, you know, compare it perhaps even with the UK in terms of overall capacity? And the second question is, lots of qu um, comments about war crimes. Do you see anyone ever getting punished for that? Right. Um, Let's I go go with them in order. Um, broadly speaking, the assumption was that the Ukrainian forces were far weaker than the Russian forces. In strict material material terms, overall, yes, probably about four to one superior or three to one superior in person power. Russia, after all, is a country. I think the current population is about what's it, 145 million, maybe 150 million. Ukraine is about 45 million. So Russia is sort of three and a half times the size in population. And the expectation was that the Russian forces would be pretty overwhelming. Uh, but there were also people who specialized in the Russian armed forces who were always rather dubious about that. Uh, the system is very uh, tough from the top. Um, there is a lack of individual um, independent action capability. In other words, the level of the, the sergeants and maybe the, the junior lieutenants to act on their own. I mean, I've lectured for the last 40 years at British defence colleges, and I've been sort of have, and sometimes with groups at all levels, you know, from uh, basically uh, non NCOs right through to sort of senior people. And when you're talking to a group I've done on a number of occasions who recently come back from Iraq 
or from Afghanistan, what becomes clear is for them what really counts is not the politics overall, but their own mates, how they work together. And, you know, you look at what happened in Afghanistan, uh, where you had, you know, uh, people at sort of lieutenant level doing local deals with the Taliban for mutual um, value. It was mutually useful to do. Uh, you don't have that anything like as much with the Russian army at the present level. On the second issue of, so in other words, there's a leveling factor there. And also Ukraine, the forces have by and large much higher morale and determination. On the second issue of war crimes, well, there are on occasions, but the whole International Criminal Court uh, is so weak. And remember that Ukraine, uh, Russia, the United States are not even members of it. So that's a big limitation. Um, but I think there's an area where there needs to be huge improvements. We have a whole sort of whole panoply of international, uh, basically um, international law relating to war, uh, but it is basically relatively low at present and probably got a lot lower, which is another problem effect of the war. We should be moving in the opposite direction, I'm afraid. But, you know, the capability to do it does exist. Um, but the trouble is, if it exists for Russia, then it exists for some Western leaders in terms of what they did in Iraq and Afghanistan, which, again, if you read the detail of that, it's very uncomfortable. Um, at the back? Yes. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Okay. Come next. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, two quick questions. First, you took us back at the beginning of your talk to 1989. Do you think there's a case to look further back to 1954 and Khrushchev's transfer of Crimea uh, to Ukraine from Russia? Uh, and second, could you say a word or two about the Russian establishment's view of the West uh, and, and sort of Western... Sorry, could you just repeat the last bit? The Russian... The Russian establishment's view of the West and Western hypocrisy on certain issues. Yes. I think, uh, essentially, um, on, the, uh, on the second issue, uh, I'm cautious here because, again, I'm not a specific Russian specialist. You're going to have to come to the meeting tomorrow morning. We've got Richard and uh, Nick both speaking, who can help you much more on that. It's certainly clear from a Russian perspective um, there is an awful lot of feeling of hypocrisy on the West. Uh, but that extends beyond Russia. That goes far more around the world, much more than we are happy to accept. But it's part of sort of the, 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 a worldwide view, a misrepresentation of how we are seen. I know I may have, you may have heard this from me before, but one of my learning lessons when I was a student a long time ago, being told by a Ghanaian friend that there was one very good reason why the sun never set on the British Empire. That's because the, the basically, um, the sun never set on the British Empire was because God didn't trust the British in the dark. Now, and that one phrase is a completely different mindset. And I think there's a, there's a strong belief at present, we, by nature of who we are, are the good guys. And the problem with that is that that is not how much of the rest of the world sees it. Mm. Uh, you know, I've worked in Uganda and Kenya and Tanzania some years ago. But you, you get a very different picture there. I remember one of my first um, conversations with a Uganda friend who I was working with, and he was from Buganda, you know, southern Uganda, and he just happily meant, liked to mention that the royal house then uh, went back far, far more generations than the house of Windsor. As far as he was concerned, the British royal family were Johnny's come lately. It's just a different attitude. And I think so, but that also permeates right through to the Russian view of the West. Having done that, what was the other question? <laughs> Sorry about that. 1954, Khrushchev in Crimea. 
Well, that, 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 I mean, that's a certainly very strong thing from the Russian point of view, that this was obviously during the Soviet period, but essentially um, Khrushchev felt sufficiently safe to, in, in many ways, sort of deal with potential regional tensions by basically saying Crimea can be administered by the Ukraine authorities. They were obviously all part of the Soviet Union. That was risky in some extent to the very long t in the very long term, but of course the view within the Russian leadership at the time that Russia was there for the long term was a superpower. There was no sort of thought that it might come apart. Now, though, the Ukrainians will turn around and say that should never have counted, whereas Russians will say, well, it was already part of us. And that is a feeling, although not technically true, uh, of some of the people in, in the rebel republics. But I think the, re the, the world was so different in 54 compared with now. Some people say you could actually go back to 1919 and how we settled the First World War uh, and make a comparison with that, uh, how we dealt with the end of the Cold War. There was a very good book by a couple of international relations scholars in the States, published only about four years after the 1990 changes, which simply was headed, We All Lost the Cold War. And that started to draw those out in a very thorough way. The idea that we won is a very dangerous thing to do. That really was um, arrogance, I'm afraid. And while you may argue very strongly that what Putin is doing is utterly uh, illegal and everything, heedless in many ways, uh, from the perspective of many Russians, uh, you know, this is really responding to the situation before. And the start, obviously the aim was to actually control Ukraine and Belarusia, and therefore basically push the, the boundaries, if you like, push the center of gravity back towards Western Europe. And that would allow uh, the new Russia to expand and grow and be at the head of a sort of new entity. Um, one the back here. Hi, thank you. Um, I was just wondering uh, whether you thought if the Russian position in Ukraine continues to worsen, whether or not the Russian government may resort to mass use of conscripts in Ukraine before any sort of negotiated uh, settlement. It's possible. I mean, looking at what is happening now, they never went on a full war footing. It was one of the things that some very sharp Western analysts were pointing out at the start. Russia was not preparing for all-out war, and it was caught out in the first week or so. The current indications are that Russia uh, is pro probably not able to do that because it wouldn't have much effect, because you know, the young conscripts just don't have the training to be at all competent, and bringing in older reservists or, uh, of different sorts, the same applies. There were some indications that you know, Russia was bringing in people from Syria, um, part of the Wagner groups, the Russian mercenaries, uh, and of course the Chechens. But that again, it was very much a sort of propaganda hype. It does not seem to have had very much effect on the ground. Um, Russia can certainly put more and more troops in. The quality of their equipment and their abilities is very much open to question. Uh, what they do have, as we've dealt with already, is this overwhelming artillery capacity of a certain range and intensity. And this is why the damage done to some of the cities has been absolutely appalling. Although I have to say that if you look at what had happened in Western Mosul when that was taken from ISIS, you look at the, basically the bomb maps, virtually every building in Western Mosul was destroyed. And if you look at the siege of um, Fallujah in November uh, 2004, at uh, the end of that siege done by the US Marines, uh, on television very much, um, all of the public buildings were destroyed or damaged, 
and half of all the residences in the entire city were destroyed or damaged. So in other words, that is the capability, and Russians are using that repeatedly. You then come back to the whole question of war crimes. Uh, but the essential thing is, this is the nature of how the conflict is going. Russia is almost reduced to this using standoff weapons and artillery because essentially it doesn't have the trained capability on the infantry side to actually take cities house by house, except at massive cost. And it's finding that repeatedly. Thank you. Um, two questions, if I may. Uh, firstly, I'd like to ask about your thoughts on what would need to happen either in the Russian leadership or in the front, uh, like the war front, uh, in order for Russia to be more willing to enter negotiations, like what, what would need to happen there? Um, and secondly, um, as we know, Finland and Sweden are now accessing NATO, which sort of changes the whole European security landscape. Um, do you reckon, or what are your thoughts in sort of like short to medium term? Is this going to increase stability and security in Europe, or do you reckon it's actually going to um, exacerbate the, the tensions between uh, NATO, Russia, and, and this whole situation? Thank Gosh. you. On the Ukraine, uh, on the Finland-Sweden uh, side, it does improve NATO's capability and strength in the north, and no doubt about that. And essentially, if there was to be any further major conflict, which stood a chance of expanding, then it would stretch the Russian forces considerably. Uh, the psychological aspect of this is that so much of the Russian Navy and strategic forces are in northwest Russia, you know, really pretty close to Finland. And this is one of the reasons why they've always been keen to avoid the Western militarization of Finland. And the Finns have had to play a very difficult game, which they played pretty cleverly on the diplomatic side, to essentially um, look to the West, but basically always look to what Russia needs to have in terms of its own security. That obviously has gone, I'm afraid, now. And the Swedish, they basically, right through the Cold War period, have, had always been experts in what are termed defensive defense. The Swedes have very little capability to go on the offensive. They never thought they needed it. They never even got nuclear weapons. They knew how to do them, and they took some of the sets when they went the full hog, because they decided you could actually make it so difficult to occupy a country, that was the better way to do it. But the Swedish forces themselves are competent and can change. So that, I think, alters the balance, if anything, against Russia in the short term. What will be needed in that respect, of course, is a sort of a transformation um, in Europe through to Asia in overall attitudes you know, and a willingness actually to go back to what should have happened in the 1990s, a willingness for countries to work together. And there are indications that Russia might have gone quite a long way with that, but there were strong elements in the West that basically saw this as an extraordinary opportunity to really push things back against the one that had been the previous enemy. Once again, I've forgotten the, I've, I've, uh, I've forgotten the first question <laughs> quickly. Oh yes, what needs to happen to get negotiations? Uh, I'm not sure anybody knows. Um, as I say, I do know that there are groups with experience in these sorts of talks looking at the possibilities and keeping channels of communication open, non, not at government level. I mean, you see it in any major area where there are very pr serious problems of conflict at an international level, 
where it would be impossible for either government or either combatant to admit that they're talking, for talks still to be going on behind the scenes. I mean, you know, the Conservative government in Britain was willing to see uh, all kinds of secret talks in the early 1990s with the provisional IRA. Uh, and there have been many other examples of that. You saw it with the Oslo process as far as Israel and the Palestinians are concerned. That basically failed eventually, but on the uh, Northern Ireland side, it was part of the process of moving across. So there are people around who can help it. What actually makes a change? I worry that the West will put too many sort of conditions on any kind of talks uh, because of those elements that basically want the war to continue and to really destroy not destroy Russia, but damage Russia for the long term. Within Russia, I would, this is more of a guess, I would think that in fact, while they can survive the sanctions for a long period, uh, and while in many ways it's not turned out to be as bad as many people in the West thought, um, I think the loss of life uh, may become much more significant uh, at the sort of lower level you know, because people talk a huge amount to each other. Uh, and, you know, this is not necessarily spread by the net, uh, but by the media. Basically, it, it's almost an underground thing. And when you're talking about virtually every town or even village or every city district, knowing of somebody who's been killed or maimed for life, that is when you start to get the change of opinion at a grassroots level, I can use that term. And that may be one of the things that does persuade negotiations. I hope so, but I don't think anybody really knows at the moment. How do you think things will end? Will it follow the Northern Ireland model or other models, Vietnam, Korea? Um, and yeah. secondly, war crimes seem to be used as a propaganda issue that we heard a lot about it from Western media. Um, and then suddenly things went quiet, and I wonder if it was just people trying out a new tactic. Look how fierce we are. Yes. Better um, get away. I, I think there's a lot in that. And I mean, in different circumstances, not now, uh, the use of the term genocide has that kind of effect. Uh, even when, if you look at the legal, you know, there are academic definitions of, ex of genocide, those are rarely actually covered. But essentially, I think you're seeing that with the whole war crime side now. In terms of how it will end, how do I think it will end? Well, it depends whether I've had a drink or not. <laughs> um, I, I, th I think basically it will have to end in negotiations. Um, the risk is there is an escalation and the use of even a demonstration nuclear strike. No more than that, maybe. Um, and the Americans are already working out how to respond to that in a non-nuclear way. Uh, so I think it will end uh, in a kind of stalemate and very difficult negotiations will finally see a way out, but it may take a long time, and the after-effects are going to stretch a generation, I'm afraid. Okay, I'm really sorry. I'm going to have to draw it to an end there, so that's the end of our time, and some people have got some other events. People are slipping out to yeah. go to other events. Um, obviously, uh, you'll be around for a few yeah. minutes afterwards, no, really. so um, we can have a quick chat. Um, thank you very, very much for coming to this event. It's been really illuminating and um, you've been a really lovely bunch and yeah. uh, please say a really warm thank you to our speaker. Thank you so much.